Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. And we are kicking off our number two of Hardline right here on News Radio 930 WBEN. Brenda Alacy with you along with uh, Joe Beamer. And thanks to Scott Miller for running the board for us back at the station. Well, we've had a busy sh- uh, show so far. Uh, or excuse me, I should say New York State Republican Chairman Committee. Uh, Committee Chairman Nick Langworthy joined us uh, at 10 o'clock. And then we had Bishop Michael Fisher on at 1030. And in this hour, we'll welcome State Senator Rob Ort and later University Council Member Rashid Wyatt. And your calls and texts are most welcome at 716-803-0930. If you miss any portion of the show, it will be available uh, when we're done, uh, just after 12 o'clock, at radio.com. So... Without further ado, it's great to have uh, State Senator Rob Ort back with us on Hardline. Good morning, Rob. Good morning, Brenda. Good morning, Joe. Thank you for joining us, taking time out on a, a Sunday, Rob. We really appreciate it. And it's been uh, an eventful week, to say the least. And I think to say that you're outraged about uh, the AG's report about the underreporting of deaths in nursing homes due to COVID, uh, is that an overstatement? What was your initial reaction when you heard the news? Well, you know, the, uh, not only was I outraged, but I, I think the outrage, you know, was, was across the board, certainly for the loved ones um, who had, uh, you know, who'd passed in nursing homes, their families, uh, the people who work in these facilities, because we had heard, and there was a sense for many, many months now, that what we found out in the report was, in fact, the case, right, was, in fact, true, that there had been a an underreporting, a deliberate underreporting, not an accidental under, underreporting, not sort of a, a matter of just, well, we count it this way, but there was a deliberate attempt to mask and underreport to the public the actual number of deaths in nursing homes. And then the question would get to, well, well why? And the AG's report also uh, touched on that, that the executive order from the governor Uh, of last March contributed to the deaths and the spread of COVID in these facilities. So I think those are two of the most important aspects of the report is that there was underreporting and that this is likely why there was a deliberate attempt to underreport because otherwise the governor's executive order and the true numbers would have brought a lot more scrutiny on the governor it would have changed the narrative. Uh, it maybe would have, you know, changed the, the numbers of, his, of the copies of his books that he sold. Maybe he wouldn't have got an Emmy. But the bottom line is that was the truth, and the truth was deliberately held uh, from the people of New York. So I was outraged. Uh, I was outraged by my colleagues across the aisle who've done nothing. This report, Brenda, just so this report uh, came out from the attorney general, a member of the governor's own party, obviously a Democrat, someone who I have not. Uh, always uh, agreed with uh, since she took the office, but I give her credit. She did this report. She put it out there when every other Democrat in the state legislature who also had the power to issue subpoenas, who also had the power to try to get these numbers, 
did absolutely nothing for the past seven, eight months on this issue. So, um, you know, it's a start, but there really needs to be a full federal investigation into the findings of this report. And as I said the other day, I think Commissioner Zucker uh, absolutely needs to resign. As a matter of fact, you said uh, Zucker's uh, behavior represented an unbelievable level of duplicity. And what uh, what do you think should be done to him other than resignation? Do you see any sort of criminal activity here, any sort of criminal charges? So, you know, I'm not I'm not a prosecutor. I think we, the only way we know that is if we if there is a federal investigation where there is subpoenas where we, we, we subpoena you know, emails and we subpoena communications between the commissioner and others, the commissioner and the administration and the governor, because I think that's how you get to, um, you know, if there's anything more. Um, I can only go off of what we know. And, and, and by the way, we don't know everything. Uh, even the attorney general, the top prosecutor in the state, even she still did not, when she issued her report, there was not a number of deaths in the report. Even she was not able to actually get the number from the Department of Health. Um, and so there's my point of that is there's still a lot we don't know. This could just be the tip of the iceberg. But I think what we do know, it is impossible to me that somebody can say that the commissioner at this point has the full confidence of the public to lead the Department of Health in the midst of this pandemic. This is the guy who's out on all the commercials, all the public service announcements, go get the vaccine, which has been, you know, the rollout has been a disaster. Uh, he's the one who's going out there and he's the face of the department. And you can't do that in light of this report and in light of what we now know. So he absolutely has to resign. And again, I, I have called on um, our federal partners and you've had calls from Senator Gillibrand, Congressman Stefanik, Congressman Reed, uh, as well as others. Uh, who've called for a federal investigation. So there seems to be bipartisan support at the federal level to do a federal investigation and make that determination is if there's more here and if there's charges or criminal charges uh, that would be awaiting. Rob, you know, um, talk about the commissioner, but the governor, he still has those executive powers until April. Do you think this report will speed up anything in Albany to take those powers back? You know, Joe, I, I... I, yes, it should. Do I think that it will? Um, you know, I'm not holding my breath. We, we have introduced, as you, I'm sure as you, you and your listeners are aware, we've introduced a resolution each and every day since we've been back in session. So six times now, we've introduced a resolution on the floor of the Senate to rescind the governor's broad emergency powers that he was granted last March, which can be rescinded by a simple majority vote of the legislature. We've introduced that resolution every day, and we will continue to do so. But every day we've introduced it so far, it has been voted down by Senate Democrats. Um, as I said earlier, Senator Skoufis, who is the chair of the Investigations Committee, that committee has a subpoena power and is designed to do investigations into things like this. They have done nothing all year on this issue. So that level of inactivity... Um, that level of, of, you know, just abdication of the responsibility doesn't really give me a lot of hope that they will suddenly start uh, taking this more seriously. Now, maybe they will. And if the, if the report brings about the rescinding of the governor's emergency powers, that would be great. But I have seen no sign of that from the majority uh, up to this point. Uh, and that's why, again, that's why we're, we're looking to the federal, par, federal partners 
to do something because I just don't believe that the majorities in either house at this point have any political courage or political will to hold this governor accountable. Um, you know, the, the governor said the other day in response to this, who cares? That's what he said, who cares? When he was questioned about this. Um, I don't know if my colleagues across the aisle care. I hope they do. Uh, and if they do care, they can, they can provide an answer to the governor and say, we care and we're going to do something about it. Um, but I can tell you the people who've lost loved ones, uh, the, the, the people who live in these facilities, uh, currently people who work in these facilities, I think a lot of people do care. And it's time that we as elected officials show them we care by holding this governor and his administration accountable for this report and for their response during this pandemic. We're talking with State Senator Robert Ort, who is the minority leader and represents the 62nd District. And Rob, speaking of those families who lost loved ones, uh, you talk about how they've been denied real answers. What do you hear from your constituents about this? I can't imagine the level of outrage. So it's it runs the gamut. You know, uh, obviously, and I don't want to I don't want to miss this in this report as well. There was real criticisms uh, and, and um, accusations leveled against ner- the, the facilities, you know, nursing home facilities across New York State uh, that didn't follow protocols that were that had several um, issues before the pandemic. Um, you know, they didn't have enough PPE. Now, that could be uh, an issue with, uh, again, with the state providing that. But um, so I've heard from constituents about their, the conditions their loved ones were in uh, leading up to the pandemic. Uh, and I've certainly heard from constituents since then about all the things that were in here. All, it was sort of, it was sort of, uh, it was a confirmation, but it was also depressing because as you're reading some of these, you know, findings, it's like, yeah, that's just that's everything that we were told back in June. That's everything that I heard from workers back in July. That's what I heard from you know family members um, at the beginning of the pandemic. That, that you know. Um, whether it was the PPE, whether it was lack of protocols, whether it was, uh, again, the, the executive order that was issued. So uh, the, the constituents, I think, if, if you have a loved one that's ever been in a nursing home facility, I think you can understand or connect with this in a different way. I think for a lot of people, if you've never been in a nursing home or you don't have a loved one in, in a nursing home during the pandemic, maybe, you, maybe you're still outraged, but maybe it just doesn't connect with you. But I can tell you, if you have a loved one, uh, that was p- either potentially exposed to COVID as a result of that executive order, or if you just care about honesty and transparency in government, right? Like we always hear about these words, transparency and honesty. As an elected official, you have an obligation when it comes to something like this, managing a health crisis, to be honest about the numbers. You may remember, Brenda and Joe, a couple of years ago, the VA had an issue uh, at one of their hospitals in Phoenix where there was an absolute deliberate attempt to cover up the number of veterans who died while in care at the VA hospital. When that was discovered, there was repercussions across the VA, including a change at the top. That's what needs to happen here. It's the same thing. It's the exact same thing. It's a deliberate attempt. We need to know more. We need to know if there was criminality involved. We need to have a full federal investigation. But there is just no way you can tell me that the governor can sit there and say that Commissioner Zucker has the, has the full confidence uh, to continue to lead this department. And if he does, then that re- raises real questions about the governor's judgment uh, as we go forward. 
Speaking of uh, the pandemics, uh, we, we had the nursing home reports, but we've also had uh, this vaccine rollout that just seems to get worse and worse as time goes on. You know, you look around the country, you see states like Florida, states like Virginia, states like West Virginia um, doing an all right job with the vaccines. Florida has, I, I believe, most of their frontline wor- workers uh, vaccinated. Here in Erie County, here in New York State, we're getting vaccine appointments delayed or canceled altogether. Uh, What happened and where do you see the vaccine rollout going over the next month? So, Joe, a couple of things. I think on one hand, uh, and you've seen this in the exasperation, even from, you know, from County Executive Mark Holkars, who's uh, politically an ally of the governor, but has uh, expressed, I think, a lot of frustration, as have a lot of county executives and county uh, elected officials and county health uh, officials across the state. Part of it is no one knows what's really going on because the governor is controlling. It's a very small uh, group of people that are making these decisions. And that's the governor's style. That's his brand. Uh, But it doesn't seem to be working very well uh, in this situation. And uh, it certainly doesn't work well when you're trying to communicate and bring other people in. So a lot of people, I think, aren't sure. But I will tell you this. My, my belief is that there's two issues going on. One, obviously, we have a set limited amount of doses coming from the federal government and from the manufacturers. But we know that's the case, right? Obviously, we would love to have more. Every state would love to have more. But we have what we have. So the governor has, rather than prioritize the most vulnerable, our seniors that are in nursing homes or, or our health care workers, he has seen fit to try and, you know, try to bring as many different groups into um, the rollout, at least in the first phase. And in my view, um, as he's made that a priority, it has, it's, it's diminished, right? You have X number of, of, of uh, vaccines. And so the more, the more groups of people you're trying to bring in there, you're not able to actually vaccinate the people you should be vaccinating out of the gate. Uh, the perfect example is when we had a briefing from Larry Schwartz, uh, I asked him point blank, would prisoners be in the next phase? I was concerned that we were talking about vaccinating prisoners before we were fully vaccinating law-abiding citizens who were at the greatest risk of getting this. Um, he said that that was not the focus. That was not an issue or a concern at this point. They were focused on uh, you know, the current phase. And then I find out minutes after that he gave it the the opposite answer to members of the Democratic majority. He was briefing the Republican senators at that point. So we can't even get this, the right information or the same information in these briefings from the administration. So I think that highlights a real problem. Again, was that accidental? Did he not remember what he told the other group of senators? Or were they intentionally trying to obfuscate uh, or deflect? So I, I think You can look to other states as a perfect example of how we should be doing this. We should be including our county partners, you know, like our county executives, our local county leaders, our health departments, the emergency management department. They already have infrastructure set up to get the vaccines to the people who need them. But we don't, you know, this administration is not big on that collaboration because it's all about control. Uh, And so, if the goal is control, then they're doing a great job, I suppose. If the goal is to vaccinate people and make sure people who need the vaccine get it, then they're doing an awful job. And each day, as you said, Joe, it just seems to get worse and more frustrating uh, for New Yorkers. 
Rob, uh, switching gears for a moment, uh, I saw you over at the uh, Glen Park Tavern earlier this week. I saw this on the news. And I know you were joined by Senator Borello and uh, your colleague uh, in the Assembly, Ed Rath, uh, discussing the legislative package aimed at assisting restaurant and the hospitality industry, which has certainly been affected uh, in a huge way by the pandemic. What are you trying to achieve with this uh, initiative? So uh, I was I was glad to be at the Glen Park uh, as an Niagara County guy. It's one of my favorite spots on the other side of the canal. Um, and, you know, as you said, Brenda, the, the, the restaurant and hospitality industry, everyone has been impacted by the pandemic. But I think we can all agree that those that industry has been very uniquely hit um, and very little has been done at the state level for that industry. We passed a number of bills related to other industries or other you know, groups of people impacted, but not a lot for this industry. And, um, you know, 8,300 8, and change restaurants across the state have closed since the pandemic began. And so um, we, we feel that there needs to be a shot in the arm. Uh, and so we, my colleagues, Senator Borello, Senator Rath, uh, as well as others, worked on a package of bills uh, supported by our conference, one of which actually just passed um, last week, uh, with the support of the Democrats, and that was to uh, limit the amount of uh, what a third-party delivery vendor could charge, so like a DoorDash or somebody, uh, to prevent them from gouging uh, uh, restaurants. But also there would be a uh, sales tax, um, a week-long kind of sales tax holiday on food and booze. Uh, counties could opt into that, similar to what we used to have with, you know, on clothing for back-to-school shopping, there would be a one-year extension on all liquor licenses. Uh, as you can imagine, those are not cheap. And um, many restaurants uh, that serve alcohol, they had to pay for their alcohol license, their liquor license. And for many of the months this year, they couldn't use it at all. Uh, and so we feel that there, you know, a one-year extension for anyone that serves uh, alcohol on their liquor license would be uh, welcome. And, uh, you know, there's other things in there uh, trying to limit the amount of unemployment insurance that would be paid, not be paid out, but the premiums to limit the hit. Because obviously with more people unemployed in, the, in this industry, the unemployment insurance premiums are likely to go up for a lot of these restaurants. But again, most of this is not any fault of their own. It's a result of the pandemic and the resultant lockdowns uh, and restrictions that have been in place for a long time now. So we're just trying to give these businesses a shot in the arm. We're trying to make sure they can survive. And, and I would, you know, I think it's important to remember, we're trying to make sure that the people who work in these facilities or work in these establishments have jobs to go back to. You know, a lot of these folks that are waiters and waitresses and chefs and bartenders, um, you know, that's, a, that's their income, that's their livelihood. Uh, they're trying to raise families and, and put kids through schools and stuff on those things. So you need to make sure that they have places to go back to uh, and so that that was the intent of the package. Very true, because uh, we've had Ellie Granauer on the show uh, a number of times, and she is the co-owner of the Glen Park. And she, like many of her uh, fellow restaurant owners, talk about how some of their staff members uh, use their jobs as a full-time living. This is not just somebody trying to pick up a few extra bucks on the side. It's their career. So uh, I hope that uh, those folks can be helped. And I also want to uh, 
tip the hat, the chef's hat in this case, to many of the restaurant owners who found ways to improvise, who tried to find ways to uh, set up outdoor dining, whether it was in a parking lot or under a canopy or an igloo, and tried to comply with the ever-changing requirements. Uh, That, to me, is a reflection of the spirit of people who don't give up and who are managing to get through this very difficult time. State Senator Rob Ort, always a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much, and we look forward to talking with you down the road. Thank you both. You have a good weekend. You too. Stay safe. And uh, we'll check out our news headlines at the bottom of the hour and then be joined by Rashid Wyatt, who is the University Council Member of the Buffalo Common Council, right after our news update. Joining us for our last half hour is Rashid Wyatt. Rashid is the University... Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. District Council member and uh, nice to have you back on board, Rashid. Welcome and good morning. Good morning, Brenda. Thank you for having me back. Absolutely. Uh, plenty of things to delve into when it comes to the uh, to city issues. Uh, but more, I guess, globally, I'd like to ask you your thoughts about uh, the, the Attorney General, Letitia James' report on what Governor Cuomo's uh, alleged underreporting has, uh, has involved. And what is your reaction to that? Um, I'm a little bit surprised, um, but I haven't read the report, so I don't know the details of it. But, um, I, and again, I think uh, the governor has done a fantastic job addressing the issues of COVID. Um, this is a, a misstep if that's what she's reported is accurate. Um, however, I do think that he's made a commitment to address many of the issues as it relates to COVID, um, especially as it relates to those who are in nursing homes and that, and that we hope that, you know, the everything will come out and that things will work out as this vaccine um, is pressed forward, um, giving it to communities um, who have been hard hit by COVID-19. If indeed it is uh, 50% or more uh, in underreporting, to me it's a much, much bigger thing than a misstep, Rashid, with all due respect. I think uh, this investigation may involve, uh, who knows, ultimately a criminal investigation. Uh, and if I had a loved one in a nurse in a nursing home, I'd be absolutely outraged by this. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens. So, do you intend to read the report at some point? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, but you know, unfortunately, um, that's part of not part of the city's peer view. Um, we're, the health and safety is over Erie County, but I do want to educate myself in knowing what actually happened. And I know, as a financial person or just as a person that understands how audits go. Um, things can be missed, and that's a, this is a big thing, as you stated. I'm not going to understate it. It is a big miss, um, but hopefully, you know, the truth will come out and how what 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 misstep happened, um, because we can't allow people to think that um, when it comes to the health and well-being of our 
um, citizens that something like this can happen. So I absolutely agree with you on that. Uh, Rashida, in terms of the university district and the rollout of the vaccines, uh, how has it been handled in your district and in some of the adjacent districts uh, in the city? Um, well, it hasn't rolled out as I would have liked it. Um, I have, um, along with some of my colleagues from the council, um, and I think um, the council president, Darius Pritchett, and um, major- minor- Majority Leader David Revere for their support in sending letters out to our elected officials, um, because the 14215 zip code, which I, I represent a great deal, um, was hit very hard by COVID. And if we're following the science, I would have expected that the vaccine would have started um, in this area, and it didn't. It started in other areas, so I'm a little bit disappointed there. Um, but I'm hopeful that we will um, get it right and we'll, again, focus back on the science and where people were um, hardest um, hit and that it will be addressed from that perspective. Speaking of the science, the um, the governor has eased restrictions up a little bit uh, with restaurants, indoor dining, and now with events starting in March. Do you think that's the right way to go? Do you trust the uh, governor's guidance on this? Um, I, I'm a little bit mixed on that one because I think that where he was going, especially with this new strain, um, is a little bit disconcerting. So I don't know if I would have eased up that quickly. Um, but he's been following the science for the most part, it seems, that throughout this whole process. So, um, yeah, I'm, I was a little surprised that he eased up, especially with the new um, advent of the strain that could be more contagious. Um, I was a little surprised by that. But I think the, the bottom line, he was probably um, yielding to a lot of the pressure with the lawsuits and things um, that people had gone to court and, and won. So maybe that was part of it, but I, I was surprised that he eased up. Councilmember Rashid Wyatt is joining us, fellow Madai alumni. Uh, Rashid, we know what's going on with the city schools. On Monday, the plan is for K-2 through to go back to school on a limited basis, um, but the teacher's filing a lawsuit. I just want to know, what do you think of the situation? Well, I guess, you know, I can understand teachers and their concerns, especially if they all have not been vaccinated. Um, I still have parents who are concerned about sending their children back and, um, you know, with the protocols. And I'm, I'm just surprised because I would have thought that if teachers were vaccinated, then maybe parents would feel a little bit more comfortable. But I'm not certain that all the teachers have been vaccinated. I think they were part of the first um, rollout. But, again, until those things are done, and then I understand that the school, um, the, the president for the um, Teachers Federation is not is, is a little concerned that the schools aren't clean. I would hope that they would be clean that they haven't had anyone in them for such a long time. But um, those are all things that I think that you would have hoped that would have been um, ironed out before this and until it came to this point. So I'm hopeful that it will be wor- worked out. But more importantly, um, we have to make sure the parents are confident and comfortable in sending their children back um, because absent of that, um, they might just stay home. You know, Rashid, you, you raise a great point. I find it mind-boggling that it's been almost a year now, and there's still concern about uh, being able to open windows and cleanliness and so forth. Uh, and teachers, of course, have a legitimate concern about their safety, but what's your view about kids being in the classroom uh, versus uh, learning virtually? Uh, in my opinion, I think there's nothing that really compares to the in-classroom situation. Oh, uh- Brenda, I absolutely agree with you. Um, I think that our children, especially children of color, are 
being hard hit by this because you know and classroom learning is best for them in a lot of situ- for a lot of reasons um so i along with i'm sure many other parents are eager to have their children back in school because they know that that's the best best way for them to learn but to think that we're going to sacrifice um that their learning for their safety well i'm going to sacrifice and make sure that their safety is first because without that um then that's a real problem but um, I'm hopeful that it can be reconciled and that um, we can come up with some ways to really give parents confidence um, that the schools are safe for their children to come back. Um, because I know even in my family, it is a lot of pressure um, to have the children at home to make sure you feed them, make sure that they're attentive. It's, it's a balancing act. You know, when you have more than one child, you have three or four. Um, it's really a task. And um, if for parents who have to work at the same time, um, they they can't open the schools quick enough, but they have to be done safely so that parents can be comf- comfortable. Now you have young children, right? How has the experience been for you specifically? Um, it's been a real challenge. Um, I'm going to say, I mean, uh, um, me and my wife have um, with my son. Um, he's the primary person, but we all take roles because you got to get him up in the morning, you got to get him dressed, you got to get him fed. Um, my son works overnight, so when he comes home. Of course, he's dead tired, but then he sits here and monitors the kids and makes sure they're doing their work. Um, so it's a balancing act. So if you just – and then I have a um, a grandson who's only three, so he's not even in school at this point. So it takes us all working together. But if you don't have that dynamic, it makes it very, very difficult for you to make sure that your children are attentive and getting the work done. Definitely. You know, Rashid, the last time Joe and I talked with you uh, on Hardline, we talked about uh, – this kind of head-scratching policy of the school zone speed limit. And I know that you were working hard on some legislation. What's the latest update? And can you uh, explain to people uh, how this all began and what you're doing now uh, legislatively? Well, this all began, I'm going to say, Brenda, right before COVID, we passed the legislation back in March in which we um, put legislation forward that um, school zones would be enforced with cameras, um, for a per- specific time, two hours in the morning, two hours in the afternoon. And we were comfortable with that. We want to make sure children and families are safe when children are arriving or and children are departing. Um, that was on the table for many months because the mayor didn't sign it. Um, then in October, he all of a sudden woke up in the midst of the pandemic and decided he wanted to veto it. And so when he vetoed it, it put it in place where um, the cameras could be on all day, even though the legislation didn't allow for that. Um, so that, I think, is the, the pretty much the tempest of which set this whole thing backwards um, in which um, he had the autonomy to have all these cameras going all day when that wasn't what the legislation stated. But because he vetoed it, he did it in the way that he wanted. And it continues to be a, um, a train wreck in which um, they recently come out and said that they're going to be on fe- February 1. The cameras are going to be live throughout the city. Um, but they're not going to give people tickets. It's going to be a warning period. Well, on top of the problems that the company was getting the fines out to people after the 14 days, which the legislation stated, where people can't, when they call them, they're not getting a a live person. When they go to their website, they can't even register for a hearing. And then we find out most recently that the hearing officer and the prosecutor are one and the same person was not allowed by law. This thing is, again, totally backwards and as the common council has put forth we've asked for it to be paused and so everything every i can be dotted every t can be crossed 
and the administration and the mayor have refused. Um, so again, we continue to work with this backwards uh, plan um, that has again affected people in the midst of a pandemic, which is just unconscionable. And you would think that uh, people who have re- who who are reasonable would think that this would be a time to pause this thing, get it in order. Um, so that people are not being hindered. I mean, I've talked to too many seniors who are on fixed income, who are paying, who are given two or three tickets um, that you just would not believe. I mean, $150 to someone on a fixed income um, is a lot of money. Um, some of us may take that for granted, but these are real times, real people, and they're being harmed in the most insane way um, during a time in the midst of a pandemic that you just would not believe. So you said the Common Council has proposed legislation, but as of right now, those cameras are going live at midnight tonight? Well, the cameras will go live tomorrow, as from what I'm hearing, because, again, that was not communicated to the council. That was something I saw in the media, um, because the council has been asking for and almost demanding that the cameras be paused until um, this whole thing is ironed out with CESCO and with the administration, especially as it relates to the most recent revelation um, with the hearing officer and the prosecutor being one and the same when they when someone has to go to court. So to to date, has any money been collected from a ticket that was given in those camera zones? Because I know my father got a ticket, called the number, and got that ticket dismissed. Has any money been re- uh, gained from these cameras to this date? I'm sure money has been gained, but there was supposed to be refunds that were been given back to individuals, and I'm still getting complaints from people that they haven't gotten refunds. So um, we have gotten money. I haven't gotten a final. We haven't gotten a, a quarterly report as we're supposed to, and we haven't got one as of yet, but we're asking for that information as well to find out what the total dollar amount has been. I know back in October and November, it was said it was about $1.5 million on five cameras. Um, so I know the city is hurting for money, and this may be their way of trying to um, reconcile things. It's not the right way to do it, though. What sort of uh, communication are you getting? It sounds like very little. Why, why is there such a breakdown in communication uh, between the council office and the mayor's office? Brenda, I can't be, uh, uh, I don't really know. I think that the council has set a standard and has asked for cooperation. I think we've communicated in many a multitude of ways with the mayor's office to try to do things in a, in a more expedient way. I think back in March, we asked for the mayor's office and the administration to work with the council as the, with, the, with the rollout for the cameras. Um, all those things were, uh, uh, they were turned on deaf ears. And um, that's why we have the position that we're in because the mayor wants to be um, I and not team. And that's the unfortunate thing because people are hurting right now and we need to be working together, not against each other. When it comes to structuring uh, the, the, uh, folks who are handling this you talk about one person having dual roles which is not supposed to be allowed who appointed that person does that come from the mayor's office i want to say that comes from the mayor's office um but we're we're looking into it because we need to figure out how this is how, how this needs to be fixed um again we had an attorney bring this information to us um it wasn't brought to us and then matter of fact um the person who was in question about this whole process sent me a letter um, regarding this whole thing. And uh, my colleagues who are attorneys looked at it and said, well, this guy is acting like the, um, the prosecutor and the hearing, and that's not allowed. So we, we've had some revelations, and I'm thankful that we did get it because people um, who are coming in don't even know that situation. So we just need to fix this thing, and this needs to be paused, 
and they need to be paused like yesterday. Uh, Rashid, I hope you keep us apprised of it. You have our numbers. Uh, very interesting situation, and, and certainly I can appreciate the frustration in your voice about this. Uh, but I want to switch gears for a moment and talk about uh, the violence in the city. We reported on our news today about another shooting at Bailey and Broadway. That's not in your district, but I'm sure you're concerned about any violence in the city and suburbs. Uh, there was an incident in your district on Orleans Street. Uh, what uh, What is being done to try to contain some of this violence, especially, as you say, amidst a pandemic when there's so much hardship? Yeah, Brenda, I wish I had an answer. Um, I've been dealing with this for a lot, a lot of years. Um, I worked in the very early years with Council President Pridgen when we started an organization called Concerned Citizens Against Violence Coalition. Um, and we were on the forefront trying to deal with this issue. Um, we have since then organizations like the Peacemakers, United Front, fathers who um, dedicate their, their days every single day trying to address the issues of violence. And um, I'm sure it's made some difference, um, but it doesn't seem to make enough difference when you have people still dying every day. Um, I had a situation right on Lisbon Avenue where a 71-year-old woman was fatally wounded in her home watching TV. Um, I, I, I wish I had an answer, and I'm willing to work with anybody to come up with some type of resolution. I know my police chief, um, Carmen Menza, has put out special details to work on issues, and the police department is working feverishly to, to, to follow up on tips and things like that. Um, but I, I don't have an answer. I wish I did. Um, I'm supporting these Stop the Violence organizations because they are the boots on the ground, and they and many times get information that can help. But a lot of times these things that are ha haven't happening randomly and in the midst of the pandemic, you just keep wondering, what do we need to do to address this? And I think the bigger issue may be, how do we stop these guns from coming in our community? Um, I know we've talked about it from years on past, um, but I think we need to have a greater focus on that. What about uh, the, the recent uh, news about police officers uh, being asked to wear their name tags again, Rashid? And, and in certain situations, they don't have to. But does that uh, reflect perhaps a bigger problem about distrust between the police and communities? Yeah, I, I really do. And I think that for the police department to do what they did was a big mistake. I mean, here we are trying to reconcile the community with the police department. And then you go and you take these bat, the name tags off these officers. Um, and, and, and I know most cases, 99% of the officers are good officers. They do their job. Um, but do you do have some bad actors? And we've seen that nationally. We've seen that locally. Um, so, you know, that was a bad um, situation that I think even fanned the flames even more about the distrust. Um, I know recently that the, the um, police department has come out and said they're going to re-put the names back on um, the, the um, uniforms, which they should have did a long time ago. Um, but I think we do have a lot of healing. I put a proposal together um, through the Common Council to develop a civilian review board um, to try to reconcile those issues. These are real issues, and I think we can address them and we can come up to a happy meeting. Not every officer is a bad officer. That is not the point. Um, but we do want to make sure we have more good officers than bad officers. And we do want the community to have that level of trust. I think that they were building on that, but I think these recent incidents has um, eroded that a little bit. But we continue to work, put forth the effort. I know in my district, I have a great chief. Um, I speak highly of him, as well as the men and women who work in my district who, for the most part, I know are working very hard and very diligently, especially as it comes to um, the rash of violence that's been happening over the last couple of weeks.
We've got about 30 seconds left, Rashid. I do want to include a text question from one of our listeners. Uh, and the person asks, the Common Council passed the camera law in the first place. Why was that so? Um, you know, Brenda, I take that very seriously because, um, number one, we don't want to wait until a child is harmed to say, let's put something in place. Um, I thought, and I still agree, that what we did as a council in putting um, this legislation in place for um, the safety of children and family was the right thing to do. I did not agree with it being all day. I do not agree with people getting tickets at 12 noon when children are safe in the school building. Um, so I, I think that, again, it was for the safety of children and families, and you don't want to wait till an accident happens to do something. Rashid Wyatt, University Council Member, thank you so much for taking time this morning, Rashid. We look forward to talking with you down the road. Okay, thank you, Brenda. You have a great day. Thank you so much. Joe, another Power Pack show available at radio.com for anybody who wants to hear some of our interviews. Yeah, make sure that first hour is up. The second hour will be up within minutes. So if you missed any of the show or want to go back and make sure you heard something right, you can do that. And you can do it right now by using the rewind function on the radio.com app. Don't forget that. You can take live programming and go back as far as 24 hours. Uh, any programming that was here on WBEN. Be sure you wake up with us tomorrow morning. Susan and Brian will be here at 5. David Bellavia at 9. Rush Limbaugh at noon. And Tom Bowerly at 3. We'll talk to you then. Brenda, have a great week. Thanks. Stay safe and warm. Talk to you soon. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact, so jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.